Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your host, Coach Jason Coop, and on this episode of the podcast, we feature another one of our CTS athletes, the hardcore, the badass, Brandon Joy. Brandon is coached by CTS coach Chantel Robitaille, who you will remember from Coopcast number 13 and 57, and he recently set a new FKT on Montana's highest 50 peaks, which are all contained in the Beartooth Wilderness and the southern part of the state. Over the course of 17 days in this remote Montana wilderness, Brandon tagged 50 distinct peaks that were between 11,400 and 12,800 feet of elevation, and the entire route consists of 195 miles and 105 feet of elevation gain. That is a huge line. I caught up with Brandon several weeks after this monumental attempt, and after he had had some time to decompress, rest, and recover, and compile his thoughts. As you can imagine, not everything goes to plan in these endeavors, and they're inevitably a compilation of highs, lows, and mistakes along the way, and we dive into it all. You'll find Brandon is a composed, thoughtful young man with a keen sense of adventure that he's just tapped into, and I can't wait to see what is next from him. So let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with CTS athlete Brandon Joy. I'm forgetting the time frame here, Brandon. How long has it been since you finished this? Six weeks. Six roughly. weeks. Okay. So six weeks. Like, how do you feel right now? Physically or mentally? <laughs> Go over both of them because they're both important, right? Physically, I feel pretty good. Um, I've been back to to train. I'm. I'll call it training, but it's. I think, as you know, it's it's more of a lifestyle. Just my habit of just getting out and moving. And, and I, and I feel good. I don't feel like I can put in long days and a lot of vert and so, and I've done some scrambling and some, you know, even in Frisco where I'm at, I went up and I just was off trail and did some pretty exposed class four or five scrambling just for fun. So it's nice to kind of get back into that, but I definitely don't have, I don't have my foot on the gas pedal. That's for sure. <laughs> Nor should you. Just, uh, the, <laughs> Nor yeah. Should. I mean, I just, and it, I think it's, it's what I expected. I mean, after a huge effort, whether it's this or a hundred miler, especially when I'm going all out and I'm leaving really nothing out there. I find that the, the recovery physically, you know, I can get back to doing things as per normal, but I'm, I'm not going to be able, I would, I would have a very hard time doing some tempo workouts or something. <laughs> I just, it would be ultra strenuous. So physically ov- overall, it's pretty solid. And then mentally has been and just the adjustment back into normal life has, has caught me off guard. How, how challenging that was. And, and I didn't, realize the impact and I'll call it the severity of the trip that I just did. I mean, it was really, it was so much different. Like the stakes were, the stakes were absolute rather than an ultra where you have a very structured safety net. This was just pure isolation. I saw 
I only saw somebody on the summit of two peaks. And one, one of those summits was somebody that I met on the previous peak that decided to join me. So really there, there's just no one out there and you're just responsible for yourself. And, and then, yeah, coming back and, and having to readjust to work and, and deal with the trying to digest the trip trip in tandem with trying to acknowledge the physical and mental depletion at hand. Let's get into some of the exposure and no safety net features in a little bit, but I think just to kind of outline things before we get too in the weeds, a lot of, a lot of people are just not familiar with Montana's peaks and the ranges out there. And as you alluded to, they, they are quite remote and they can be quite technical. So what you decided to undertake was to do the 50 tallest peaks in Montana and the whole route, from my understanding, is between 104 and 105 miles, or sorry, 195, 194 and 195 miles with over 104,000 feet of elevation gain. So it's almost 200 miles with 105,000 feet of elevation gain. Is that correct? Correct. And it took you 17 days to do it. Correct. So it is a, it is in every sense of the word, like a monumental effort. Like you have to put aside nearly a whole month of your life to go and do something like this. Yes. And I, and I planned for the trip to take up to 30 days. So when I set my food caches and I was corralling the, the caloric needs for the trip, I, I, I gathered 125,000 calories. I was ready for 30 days of effort whether I got held up by like weather or, or injury or just general fatigue, I had no idea what, what the terrain was going to be like since I onsighted the route. I didn't scope it out really beforehand. And so there were just so many unknowns. And, and now after the fact, I'm aware of what the distance and elevation gain was and the route. But beforehand, all I had to really, all I could utilize was a topographic mapping system, which I use Gaia and then Google Earth. And you're making straight lines all over the <laughs> right. wilderness area right, right. when, and, and there's no trails. I mean, I was less than 10 miles of trails and five of those miles were in one push. So 95% of the time or more that I was out there which is just off trail navigation, trying to figure out what's the most efficient and safe at any given point from where you're at to where you're trying to go. How did all of this come about? Like what, what solidified it in your mind that you said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do this in 2020. I'm going to kind of take this thing on. I guess it started. I think a lot of people in the ultra marathon community and just general racing community, have experienced the the pandemic's effect on what their plans were for the year. And mine started about April and I had more or less a race a month through I would say September. And most of those races were utilized or going to be utilized more as training. But one by one those kept getting swept away. And I kept thinking, well, you know, the pandemic can't 
last much longer. It can't be going as strong or it's, it's going to subside enough for races to open back up. And then meanwhile, I was building all this fitness and then investing all this physical and emotional energy into training and training specifically for the next event. And, and finally I just got, honestly, I was kind of fed up with it. Um, I was just, I felt as I was burning these matches and my big race for this year was Bigfoot 200 in Washington. And I, I felt very ready for that. And I think it was about six weeks prior to me starting the Beartooth trip that that race was canceled. And I had suspicions that it was going to be canceled. So I think I was already brainstorming, but then really I had maybe a week and some change and I was just, I mean, day and night trying to figure out what I was going to do to, to test the fitness, mental and physical durability that I had worked so hard to cultivate this year, what I was going to use that energy towards. And I was thinking about all different kinds of things for long distance running, maybe rim to rim to rim in the Grand Canyon, do that a bunch of times or some big bike packing trips. I, you know, I was, I was all over the board, sure. but ultimately, ultimately I, I came across this a podcast, uh, actually Chantel, uh, Robitaille, my coach, CTS coach. She suggested I, I check out this guy, Justin Simone, and he is a Colorado based multi-sport athlete that goes on these crazy human powered self-supported missions. And, and ultimately I think she, she understood that that's what I wanted to do because all these races are so supported that, you know, one, one permit is not available and then the race can't happen or you can't have more than 50 people in a group. It can't happen. So I just, it was almost a rebellion against the idea of a supported event. And I just wanted to do everything completely on my own. <laughs> I didn't want to have to rely on anyone for anything. So you got your year foobard, like a lot of, uh, that's a technical term, by the way, like a lot of athletes did. Um, but it sounded like you were training super hard for Bigfoot with the idea that Bigfoot was actually going to happen. Correct. And so you parlayed that, um, that fitness that you had built up into this FKT, this personal project where you're doing Montana's 50 tallest peaks. What was the time frame between when you decided to pull the trigger on that FKT to when you actually started? There was a, uh, a five week, five week incubation period that I had to, to plan everything. And I was using Ultimately, I did use the FKT website as an index to get ideas for what people were, were doing for self, um, sort of creative ideas of what people were doing in the outdoors. And I saw that Nate Bender, who's a Montana-based athlete, established the Montana 12ers in 2018. So there are 27 peaks in Montana that are 12,000 feet and above. So he established this new high route and I thought that was awesome. And I thought about potentially doing that, but it would only take me about a week. And 
I wanted to do something a bit longer, but I wanted to max out really at about a month. So that's how I came up with the, the top 50. Once I did some research and I realized they were actually all in one mountain range, which is this massive wilderness area called the Absaroka Beartooth Wilderness. I think it's the sixth largest in the continental U.S. wilderness area. No motors, no mountain bikes. I think the trails have to be maintained by hand, like no, no chainsaws or anything. Hmm. I mean, it's pretty wild out there. So it's a rugged adventure is kind of what I'm getting at. And you, it's not yes. like you prepared for 12 months for this. I mean, you had another objective in mind. You were going to, you were, uh, you were going to go do a 200 mile race. Obviously that got upended just like a lot of other athletes plans got upended and you kind of took it, you, you took it with your own kind of resolve and said, Hey, I'm going to put this together based on inspiration from other people from the FKT's known website, but still at the end of the day, you had, you didn't have the most, like the, the most accurate sense of even how long it was going to take you. It ended up taking you 17 days and it thought it might take you closer to 30 days. So take me through a little bit of like that planning process of like starting to look at the route and go, okay, it's going to take me this long to go from here to here and here to here and here to here. And what, what did that actually look like? That's a great question. Um, the planning was a lot more complex than I initially anticipated. I, maybe it's just how my brain works, but I think top 50 peaks, you know, it's, it's fairly simple. It's just 50 mountains. You just go from one to the next. But there were a lot of project-specific skills that I needed to cultivate or sort of explore before I went out there. One thing I did I, that was probably this, the, the best training effort for this Beartooth trip was more or less unintentional. It was something I was going to use for training for Bigfoot. In May, I went out with John Fitzgerald, who's another CTS coach, and we did a traverse of the Bob Marshall Wilderness. And we were able to this, – this was during peak – pretty much pre-hydrologic flow, pre-hydrologic flow. And there was significant snow in the high country as well as I'll call it in the, in the middle country. So we had snowshoes. It ended up being about a hundred miles, pick your own route. It's a point A to point B and you know, trails are in unknown condition. You're having to navigate. There were 30 plus miles of significant snow, lots of river crossings, basically no bridges, you're wet the whole time. And we were able to kind of play around with a nutrition strategy and then push on the sleep deprivation side of things because it was just two days and some change. And then it was also great to help me understand how to manage my effort better because even training for a hundred mile race, we'll, we'll just say that's a sub 24 hour effort. Once you start extending like two days and beyond. And then what I was going to do in the bear tooth multi-week, I mean, it's, it's a totally different ball game to try to recalibrate like how hard you're going or to manage your effort level when you're out there. And one thing I learned from that Bob Marshall crossing was that 
I had no intention of pushing the sleep deprivation when I was in the Beartooths because there's only me. There's one brain that's working at like half capacity because I was most of the trip. I mean, after a week, I was so depleted. I was more depleted physically and mentally than I had ever been before. And I was having to navigate and make good decisions on really exposed class four and class five terrain every day. Meaning, and by exposed, I mean essentially climbing at when you're at, uh, when you're high off the ground and in a fall, you can't, a fall is unacceptable. So if I had pushed the sleep deprivation, it would have just put me in, in a bad spot. So ultimately that all those different techniques helped me to get my feet under me and, you know, I like switched backpacks and realized that the, how I was carrying water was, uh, it was wasting time and John had this great, these great collapsible flasks with water filter in the cap basically. And I was having to filter everything separately from one, from one reservoir to another. It was just a pain. So running through all that gear, as far as acclimatization, it was one aspect. I wanted to come in as prepared as possible and, these are most of these mountains are twelvers, which it's not that high. I mean, <laughs> but it's still technical. The, I think I think that's the the one of the points that you're trying to make. It's still a, like it's still a technical ordeal. Like you have to have some. You have, obviously I have to have backcountry skills, but you also have have to have some moderately competent level of rock climbing skills as well. Oh, certainly. I mean, this was by far the most comprehensive climbing test I've ever experienced. And, and a lot of what I did out there is, is undocumented. They're not very well known, like look on summit post and there's a photo of this cliff face and it has someone drew in micro in, in paint or something, all these, these bright lines of where you should go and where not to go. I mean, what I was doing out there, essentially when I got out there, my route sort of went out the window because I put down this backbone. I tried to figure out where the hotspots were, meaning where the unavoidable class five terrain was, because I was doing all this climbing in running shoes, hiking shoes, some hybrid, I guess. And with a 30 pound backpack, I wasn't just going up fresh with normally when I'm climbing. And I think when most people are climbing, they just have their climbing shoes on. They're Cinderella shoes that fit perfectly to your feet and you have a lot of control. You can use your big toe and you can get on these really small holds and have a lot of grip. And you have chalk and a lot of times you're just roped. So you have that safety net as well. And this was just getting to a specific place and choosing the route based on what I'm seeing. And I tried to figure out where the best before I left, I looked at the Google Earth and the topographic maps to try to figure out a digestible way to connect everything. And then when I was out there, I would oftentimes, especially in the first half, take what would be a more technical or direct or more interesting line 
And I found too, that a lot of times the more technical lines had more solid rock mm. versus these steep, loose, scree, bouldery slopes where I just found myself on the way up falling, but you know, going down is, is much more difficult. Sometimes I'd go down that way as well, but it was just this constant decision decision tree that was evolving based on the day, the weather, how I felt, you know, how much food I had, where my next water source was and how far I was from my next cash point, how many peaks I was planning on trying to do that day. I mean, there was, there were so many variables at any given point. It was just, it was, it was, to say it was fun would be a diluted way to put it. It was, <laughs> it was exhilarating. It was, it was absolutely the most sensational 18 days of my life. So, and you are just purely in the moment. So it, I mean, it sounds like you were you using Gaia while you're, while you were out there. Correct. Yes. Uh, okay. So you were doing the research on this and you're compiling several different sources of information from Google earth, from maps, from Gaia itself. And it sounds like you had the, peaks plotted out but the routes in between the peaks you had some like exclusionary criteria meaning i know i'm not going to go there based on what i'm seeing during the research process <laughs> but then when you got your like feet on the ground it's you're looking at it and going yep i'm going that way like you're you're totally like eyeballing it exactly yeah and the, and it went both ways i mean there were the routes that i planned up that looked the most reasonable from Google earth and Gaia. And then when I got there often, I just would take a more direct route. It just, it would be, it looked shorter, it looked more solid in some ways it looked safer. And then it was also just more climbing and, and I loved the climbing aspect of it. But then there were, it also went, you know, 180 degrees in a, in an unpleasant direction where I would plan my route and on Google Earth, 3D is incredible. It's an incredible tool, but you have no perspective for scale. So sometimes I would plan a route and I'd get there and I'd get to the summit and, okay, I'm supposed to be going to this peak next down this route. Oh, that's a 1,500-foot cliff in front of me. That is not going to happen. <laughs> so w- what I had planned was just absolutely absurd. And then I, again, had to just think, okay, well, I'm trying to still get to this peak. I can't go this way. And I'm cross-referencing what now I'm seeing with boots on the ground, with my map, you know, looking at the time where, you know, and how can I, how can I readjust or restructure getting to this peak and back such that it's efficient and safe and, and ideally using, utilizing it out and back. So in one peak in particular that I'm thinking about, as I'm talking about this, I was able to kind of horseshoe around to a saddle and then drop most of my stuff. Like I just brought enough food and water for me to go out summit this peak and come back because a lot of the trip had these, I could utilize these out and backs such that I could drop a lot of weight 
and they were, they're, they're out of the main routes. Call it the spine. It's kind of like a rib coming out, and, and that saved a lot of energy to be able to shed that weight. How did you initially decide that it was going to take you about 30 days? Because that's always, I think that's one of the intimidating aspects that a lot of athletes have with trying to piece together their own routes, especially in, especially with routes that don't have that much data on them or history of other athletes doing them as they look at it and they have no idea how long it's going to take. They, whether it's a day or two days or whatever. So when you were going through this process, like what, what made you think, and it turns out that you were, that, that, that you didn't get this all that right. What made you think that initially it was going to take you about 30 days? <laughs> it was kind of a hail Mary guess, uh, <laughs> based on a, a few different factors. I mean, ultimately I had no idea. And I just wanted to be ultra conservative that I was not going to short myself. Cause the last thing I wanted to have happen was to get out there. If I had only planned for say t- three weeks and then I'm almost to the end and I have to cut the trip short because I have to go back and resume life. <laughs> that would be, that would, that would, uh, that would stay with me for a while. So I did see that Nate, Nate Bender, he did the Montana 12ers in four days and change. Granted, he, he was able to, he did a lot of scouting. He did it supported and he just went, he was incredibly fast to do that in, in four days. So I thought, well, is maybe I will just assume that self-supported and on sighting the route, it'll take me twice as long. So that four days goes to eight days. If I were to do the same thing, okay, double the peaks, maybe double to triple the time. So then that eight days goes to say between 16 to 24 days, which honestly, that was where I realistically thought I would land if nothing horrible went wrong. And, and then that, I just extended it to 30 days to give myself that extra leeway so that I wasn't cutting up, you know, at the upper threshold of 24 days, as I mentioned, and then it takes 25 and I don't get to finish the project. So I think that was, I kind of, yeah, I I think ultimately I just used a similar project and projected that onto my own trip. Yeah. It's convoluted ultra math is what I always like to call it. Right. It's like, okay, somebody did this (laughs) in this amount of time, then I'm going to do double that. And since I'm doing double that, I got to double that. And then there's my answer. (laughs) So, so it turns out, so you're planning for 30, you end up doing this in, in, in 17 days. Um, what did the rest of the support look like that that you got while you were out there i know you did a bunch of caches but how many of them were there how far in between how long were you out before you uh before you got to kind of take advantage of any of the caches that you set so i i set four caches and setting them ended up being fairly challenging trying to figure out where they were going to go because after i I did some scouting on Google earth again, and I realized that tree line ends at about 9,500 feet. And when I was out there, 
I was at around 11,000 on average. And I tried to utilize where I would naturally, where my route that I had planned out would drop down into a drainage and put a cache there, but also have the caches be somewhat equidistant throughout the trip. And I didn't want to use, I mean, I could have used bare barrels, but I would have honestly needed like 15. It would have been, it would have been absurd. I would have, I would have wiped REI out of (laughs) their bare barrels in Montana, not just where I am locally. So what did you And so I used five gallon Home Depot buckets and I spray painted them black. And then I was stressed out about, cause it's, it's prime grizzly yeah. Oh, yeah. and black bear country. And, and I didn't want them to turn into a, some sort of pinata for a big game animal. Totally. So, so what I did is I, when I did set the caches and each cache, just for reference had about 25,000 calories. And I figured that would last me roughly a week and then say six days. And then I started with that amount of food as well. So that would, that would give me about 30 days total. And when I set the caches, I spent a lot of time looking for specific types of trees with, with sturdy branches that came out from the tree that were a little bit isolated such that a black bear couldn't climb the tree and then make its way over and start, start digging into the cache, but it also had to be at least 10 feet off the ground. And, and then, so I put a lot of time and energy into actually this specific orientation of where they were. And then I, I did spend quite a bit of time just praying that nothing happened because <laughs> from each cache point to the next, I'm like, I hope it's still there. I honestly do because I, and I set the caches a week before I started, which oh. was a massive effort in and of itself. It, it ended up being about 85 miles and 15,000 feet of elevation gain just to set these four caches. Wow. And I was doing this. I travel quite a bit for work. And so that five weeks, five weeks prior to me start be, when I had to plan this trip, five weeks prior to starting, I was out of town for half of that time. And I was setting these caches in between field jobs in which I'm working like 12 plus hours a day. And so it was just this, it was this, it was just pure chaos to, to set these things and to make sure they were good to set waypoints on, on my map and try and get that on my Garmin as well and have backup systems and, and just dot my I's, cross my T's. Cause the last thing again that I want to have happen is get through three quarters of this trip and realize that one of my caches is gone or you get there and it's, and, you know, some, I didn't think that anybody would really be out there cause I set them all off trail, Yeah, yeah. but there was that there, there's just part of me that, that would really suck because I did this fully self-supported. So once I got dropped off in the Beartooths, I mean, that was it. Like no external aid of any sort. I had what I had on my back in my backpack and in each of my four cash points. And, and if, if I had a a gear failure of some sort, I'd have to pull the plug on the trip Or, or 
another option is I could coerce a friend into bringing me, say, another pair of shoes. But then the trip would become supported. I'd lose a bunch right. of time, right. and it would be a pain. So you're hiking 20 miles round trip, roughly, to set each one of these cash points. And mm-hmm. you're doing it in the middle of the wilderness. You're, haul- you're hauling around this huge five-gallon bucket to, to, uh, to, 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 to drop off 25,000 calories. Is that how much you put in each one? Correct. And each each cash weighed about 25 pounds as well. And then you've got to find it, right? So, mm -hmm. so once you actually start the route, you've got to find exactly where you put it. So you've got to make sure that the point that you capture is correct. And I I mean, I agree with you. It's an or (laughs) it's it's an ordeal just to like set these cash points. Correct. Yeah. And, and from where I wanted to set them, a couple of them would have actually been above tree line. And so I had to redesign where the cash points went such that they would be below tree line. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't just, if I put them above tree line, then they'd just be on the ground, just a nice, you know, two millimeter thick piece of plastic to get smashed by whatever comes yeah. by. <laughs> and, and, and so when I was actually on my route, it did end up, adding in, you know, a handful of extra miles and a handful, you know, few thousand feet of extra elevation gain and loss. But in the grand scheme of the entire trip, it was, it was, a, it was a small portion. <laughs> okay. So let, let's get to the, let's get to the trip a little bit. Cause I, I think that one of the things that I want to learn a little bit more about, and I think the listeners will, uh, the listeners will really get into is just how remote it is. So first off, the 50 highest peaks in Montana, are they entirely contained within the Beartooth Mountains? Correct. Okay. Can you describe what that mountain range is like? I mean, you obviously covered a big, you know, really big portion of it. So it'd be impossible to do in you know, 10 or 15 minutes, much, much less the entire length of this podcast. But what are those mountains for somebody who's never been to Montana before? What are those mountains? Like, what do they look like? What do they feel like? What's the terrain like? The mountains are, I, I will say it is my, I'm biased, but it is my favorite mountain range in Montana. It's this, it's nearly a million acres of just wilderness. And there are very few trails. There are a couple through trails, but beyond that, they're just these small veins that that barely go into the wilderness area. And as such, there are very few people that actually go in there and, and a lot fewer people that go off trail. None of the fit, tallest 50 peaks in the state have a trail to the top. So if you want to do granite, which is the tallest peak, or Mount Wood, second tallest or whitetail or any of the other more common peaks you are it is a massive approach and i mean we're talking most of the peaks it's a 20 to 30 mile round trip if you want to get if you start from the nearest trailhead or the nearest access point and most of it's going to be off trail and it's just well i mean when i was out there as I mentioned, I was far above tree line most of the time. And then when I would go down into tree line, it's so thick. So I kept thinking, I, 
I either felt like I was on the moon or in Jurassic Park. <laughs> there, there really wasn't a lot in the middle. And there, the Beartooths are also pretty heavily glaciated, which I think is not very well known. I mean, they're not big epic glaciers. It doesn't look like Mount Rainier where it's a big white blob, but they're everywhere. And the gla- they're, that was my water source mostly was just, I drink directly from glacial runoff and snow melt. I didn't have a stove with me or a water filter. So I was just drinking unfiltered from probably the cleanest water sources in the state because it's the highest mountain range. And yeah, that was pretty incredible. And and geographically it's in like the Southwest part of the state. It's just North of Yellowstone. I'm just trying to paint the picture of where this is and kind of what Mm -hmm. what it looks like. It's just North of Yellowstone, like Southeast of, um, of Bozeman. Correct. The route that you took what direction were you generally moving in that mountain range? So I, I basically started on the Wyoming Montana border in the South and I made my way, I would say clockwise it, the route snaked all over the place, but generally I worked my way clockwise and ended in the Northeast portion of, of the Beartooth wilderness. And what made you decide to take that, direction in terms of like the backbone of all of the peaks versus going the other way? Oh, or was a it a coin question. flip? <laughs> Total uh, coin flip, huh? Yeah, I mean, there were really, I had two options. And if I, I wanted to, when I identified the hot spots of the unavoidable class five climbing terrain, I wanted, for example, granite and then the West Granite Traverse, which is rated a five, seven on the YDS scale. And, you know, if I could, I would have liked to do that earlier in the route just because it's more technical and I don't want to get into the really technical terrain at the end. But ultimately I just started in the South. It just made sense with the route itself and I think that the bailout points towards the end would have been a little bit easier. And I was more familiar with that area. I think those, those were some highlights, but ultimately granite peak and some other technical terrain in that area, they're in the middle of the route. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what end I start at. And there's technical route, sorry, technical terrain every day. Yeah. So ultimately it didn't really matter. Yeah. And that's what I was kind of trying to get at because I know a lot of athletes that set these routes up, they'll want to do it from hardest to easiest. So they're doing the hardest and or the most technical part of the route when they're the most fresh. And then as they're becoming Mm -hmm. more fatigued, they're doing the easier stuff. It's a little bit safer. Maybe they can move a little bit better and things like that. But it it sounds to, it sounds from from your perspective is, is a, it didn't matter. And B, you might not have even had that information available to you in advance because it's not something that's so readily chronicled. Correct. And I will say too, 16 of the peaks I climbed. So I, I cross-referenced 
my route and all the peaks with what's available online after I got back. And I found that 16 of the peaks that I climbed are fully undocumented, meaning there is no information whatsoever online routes, access points, do's and don'ts. I mean, it's, it is just a, it's a black hole. And so it really took just getting out there and, and, and seeing the peaks or the spires firsthand to start establishing what I thought would be an, a reasonable approach to climb them. And how you said you were trying to avoid a lot of the more technical stuff. What, how, how technical did it actually get? Did you get into any like low grade class five type of climbing? Yes. I, how- I mean, I had, I had exposed class four and low or low class five every day, meaning you fall and you're not going home. And I did the, to clarify too, I, I did the entire route unroped, no harness, no chalk, no climbing shoes, like no protection whatsoever. And so I'm having to both climb up and then also descend these routes that I'm, I just saw 10, you know, first saw 10 minutes ago and they're true Alpine. I mean, the, I don't think that crag climbers by crag. I mean, people that go to like sport routes and they go to established walls where, where routes are bolted. It's hard to have perspective for how loose the terrain is in the, in the Alpine. I mean, you have to test every single hold. You have to be prepared for some hold under your foot to just fall off the wall. And the rock isn't, it's not clean. I mean, it's covered in lichen, and some moss sometimes it's wet sometimes i mean there are like ledges with this kitty litter gravel on it or these baby head rocks i mean there's there there there's nothing predictable about any given climb other than the fact that you have no no idea what's coming yeah it's slow moving terrain because you're having to test everything yeah yeah i mean in for example at one point, I think on day six, I did this. I climbed this cliff face, which I didn't need to. And I, I think it was about 400 feet tall. It's the north face of Sky Pilot. And I could have horse, done a horseshoe, gone around the backside. And, and there's a reasonable class three, you know, maybe at most hike, to, you know, and then you come back around to Plateau Summit. But I was just primed enough with with scrambling every day and dealing with that exposure every day. And I, but not enough time had gone by to where I was too fatigued to handle that physical or mental stress. And I just got there and, and I saw a line and I just, I just went for it. And on this 400 foot vertical face, I was on it for over 45 minutes mm. and I had done an out and back. So I left, I had very little weight on my back, but it was just, I think it's a testament to just how slow that is. And on that climb at any given point, had I fallen, I would have fallen however far I was up that cliff face to the ground. So 50 feet, hundred feet, 200 feet, 300 feet, 
that's how far you're going to fall before you make contact with rock. Yeah. And here's the picture that, that I'm trying to paint a little bit because a lot of people will look at this and I, I actually had to take a double take as well when I saw the little blurb that was mentioned in uh, Old Training Magazine in their, was it their October issue. Yeah, their October issue of, 20, of 2020, where if you just look at the route stats, 195 miles, 104,000 feet of elevation gain, people can kind of look at that and go, okay, that's a lot of elevation gain for 195 miles, but why is it taking this person 17 days? And the missing link that a lot of people are not are, are not going to be that familiar with is what that terrain actually looks like and how many and how often, how frequently, how much time you've got four points of contact down. Absolutely. I mean, I when I'm talking to people about it, I honestly don't really like talking about the statistics of distance and elevation right. gain because even though it's a lot it does not give perspective for what it's, it's like out there. I mean, it is, there's, there's, there's not a single mile in which you can just space out and <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's not, none of it's on trail yeah. and, yeah. and it's all just on, on boulders and talus and, and everything is susceptible to movement and, and then also doing it with 30 pounds on your back. I mean, that was just a huge extra load of, of physical stress that I had to deal with throughout the entire trip. Well, in your background, so you've got a reasonable ultra running background. You've done some ultras. You're, you're a young kid. It's not like you've got, you know, four decades of experience or anything like that, but you've got a reasonable ultra marathon background. What was your climbing background like before you started this? So I started climbing when I was in college. I kind I grew up in the Seattle area and didn't really do a whole lot in like outdoors adventure navigation type stuff. I mean, we did some pretty I would say like an average or standard outdoor lifestyle for that area. And it wasn't until I went to college, I moved to Montana, that I started cultivating a variety of skills. And with no intention other than I was just doing what I enjoyed doing. Part of that was rock climbing. I started bouldering at the, the, the gym on campus and really didn't, like, I just enjoyed it. I wasn't that, I wasn't a diehard, but I started doing some solo camping and navigation off trail and doing that in all seasons. So being comfortable, not only with isolation, but being comfortable, not knowing exactly where you are. And then also being comfortable in an apex predator central with a very, at times, very hostile climate. So, (laughs) You know, just camping alone, like in January, no one around for 10 miles, hip deep snow, and I'm in a blizzard and in my, in in like in the middle of the night, like it's so windy, it flattens my tent and, and snaps a pole, like just dealing with stuff like that and, and being comfortable with it was huge. And 
it wasn't till after I graduated college. I, I left the United States for about a year and a half and traveled and did some extended adventuring abroad and continued climbing, continued developing endurance skills and fitness actually did my first ultra marathon in New Zealand. And then when I returned to the United States, that's when I really hit not only tra- I would say training, but just a regiment being able to have a regimented training schedule and a refrigerator, a bed, like being able to wash my clothes <laughs> and, and have access to m- more than one pair of running shoes gave me the opportunity to com- start combining these skills and in, in, in doing bigger efforts. And I, at that point too, I just started climbing a lot and it was initially utilized more as cross training with running was my main focus, but then mountain biking and also, you know, more backpacking and stuff. And I just, over time, I have enjoyed climbing more and more and more and enjoyed exploring the convergence of endurance sports with technical climbing. And I think that before the Beartooth trip, the pinnacle of that was for me last year in the summer, I went to Finland to race in, uh, an event called Nutsialis and 100 miles had the race of my life and still had about a week and a half in Europe trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Like physically, I wasn't there, but mentally I was just on fire, just excited about using my time. And I ended up going to Switzerland and soloing the Matterhorn via the Hornley Ridge, which was 12 hours sustained really exposed it's not that technical but just the exposure on that mountain is off the charts i mean a lot of the time you're looking at one two or three thousand feet before you to come in contact with the ground right and and i did that i guess you'd call it free solo so i mean no rope no harness no partner no protection so not only did i climb up the four thousand vertical feet but i also down climbed the entire thing and I think that gave me a flavor for like this endurance mountaineering side of things, as opposed to just, I'll say crag climbing or bouldering, which is, you know, you're looking at maybe at most five or 10 minutes on the wall for a sport climb. But you came into this with like a, a pretty diverse skill set is what I'm trying to get at. You have a climbing background, you have a running background, ultramarathon background, but what you decided to do with doing these 50 peaks over the 50 highest peaks in Montana, how, how much more grandiose was it than anything else that you have experienced? Like doing the Matterhorn, like doing a hundred mile race, like doing like anything that you had previously done, how far outside of like your normal scope of skills and endurance and things like that was it? The way I look at the bear trip and I, in retrospect was, ignorant going in to the project because I just don't know. I mean, you just plan something and you just, you haven't done it. I mean, that's kind of why you're doing it. But in retrospect, it was, it was a comprehensive examination of my entire life and all of my life experiences 
and all everything with my skill set, outdoors, endurance, recovery, navigation, so, you know, solitary confinement, you name it. It was it was everything. And I wanted to target a multidimensional challenge. This was just beyond anything I've ever experienced. And I thought about this a lot since I've been back, which I've, it's been about six weeks now. And just processing why the trip, trying to understand why it was so powerful. I think part of it was because I was so, completely solo and self-supported. I mean, there's no high fives, no familiar faces, <laughs> no hugs, no hot chocolate. There's just, there's nothing. It's just you and your one brain and whatever limited capacity you have to try to make good decisions and continue through the adversity that you experience out there. And I, I mean, honestly, it, the, the Beartooth project makes every, anything else I've done in my life or any singular effort feel as though it is, it's just not even comparable. The, this is just fully on its own. So did you become a better rock climber, a better runner, a better endurance athlete from this? Yes. I, I mean, as I was, since I, I'd only climbed one of these 50 peaks before, although I knew and I'd been on that type of terrain a lot. It took some, we'll call it a calibration of the different types of terrain and slopes and, and bouldery areas and different levels of chassiness or, or the rock quality. I mean, it, it took some time out there but I was just able to hone in and the more time I spent out there, the, the more easily I could adapt to whatever terrain I was on. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, I was a much better climber and you have to be a better climber if you are climbing with weight on your back, extreme fatigue, and you're in running shoes. I mean, that is, that's just by, by default. And, and it made me, really slow down. I mean, as an ultra runner or just as a runner in general, like especially doing, trying to be competitive in events, you're just trying to go fast. Like that is what you're trying to do. And that's what you're trying to be good at. And in this case, what I was really trying to do was be good at being slow. Right. Because there's no, there's no one's running this. Like, I don't care who you are. Like the terrain is so brutal that, I mean, you could maybe take a kind of a jump step every few steps if you're really feeling excited. But for the most part, it's just, it's hiking. And I, I also learned a lot about recovery. I learned a lot about how I might improve my medical kit. You know, I, I sprained my ankle when I was out there, which was about halfway through. I thought it was going to end my trip. And, and I just, you know, I worked with Chantel and tried to come up with some solutions that would help, you know, improve the condition of that injury it, navigation. I mean, it, it was, it tested every skill that I had and, and it also developed every skill. Was the lowest point where you actually sprained your ankle or was there something even worse than that? 
the lowest point in terms of something immediate that I thought that could take me out of the trip. Yes. I mean, did I think I was going to die? Like, was I stressed out that I was going to fall off a cliff? Uh, no. And so in, in some sense, and I did, I did feel that at maybe a couple points throughout the trip where I beca- I became acutely aware of my own mortality and, and how fragile life is as you're just straddling some knife ridge 30 miles from nowhere, getting harassed by the wind and beat by the sun. I mean, that was, those were, and especially in the last 10 peaks, like that was by far the most stressful part of the trip because I was so psychologically and physiologically fatigued. But in terms of a, a singular instant where, I mean, I made, a, I mean, it was on, it was on a trail mile and I was just grabbing a granola bar out of my bag. And I just, next thing I knew I was on the ground, just full pancaked. Yeah, that's and, always the way it happens. Yeah. And it sucks because I was a hundred miles in and I had, I mean, it was, the, it was the, the most benign terrain by far I had experienced the entire trip and I get leveled trying to just get a, a, get a little snack and there was immediate swelling and it was interesting actually. I mean, maybe this is a, this might derail us, but I listened to your, your interview with Corey Wolterine and he sprayed his ankle and pushed through it in about five or six days later. I mean, and it's totally counterintuitive to keep putting load on that, on an injury and to think that it will do anything, but get much, much worse. But in this case, similar to Corey, like after five or six days, and I, I really didn't slow my pace at all. I was still putting in big days. I was being very cognizant of how I was stepping and trying to put more of the risk on of, you know, rock movement, susceptibility and all that kind of stuff on my good leg. And then more or less dragging my bad leg as an anchor behind me. But after five or six days, the swelling subsided and mobility returned more or less to normal. And I was able to continue, but it's super stressful. I mean, I'm not, even if I was on a trail, it would be stressful, but to be in that type, I mean, I was still dealing with you fall, you die terrain every day with an ankle with like 50,000 feet of vertical gain, 50,000 loss, hundred miles, uh, you know, nine days on my feet, nine days out there, no hot drinks. I mean, just dealing with all this stuff. And then you're climbing this ancient virgin rock that's crumbling beneath you. And, and your body is just sort of worsening. But yet your ankle gets better. That's what's always been really weird because I've seen a number of athletes in this exact same expedition length situation where they have some traumatic injury five days into it that in any normal training circumstance, they're out for a week. Like no training for a week. They roll their ankle. They you know, damage their Achilles or something like that. But then they keep, because the situation they're in, they keep, they keep going on. In your case, you kept going on. And five days later, it's better. 
Like there's no explanation for that. It was, it was very bizarre. And, and I didn't even know that that was, that was a thing that, 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 that happened to other people. And I've never experienced that myself because anytime that happens to me, like during training or whatever, I sprain my ankle or something is strained. Like that's, that's when you pull the plug, you relax, you, you do some physical therapy, you get a lot of sleep, hydrate well, and you take a couple of weeks off. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in, in listening to that interview with Corey was, there's just this light bulb that went off and I thought this is, I have no idea what it was, but I'm thankful that it happened. And that was certainly a low point of the trip. Another low point was just the condition of my fingers from the constant climbing. My fingers got brutalized. Uh, my fingertips. I wore, <laughs> I wore like a light pair of Carhartt gloves, and they worked really well. And I cut the fingertips off, so I'd have the dexterity. I'd be able to feel the rock. It's very important when I'm climbing to be able to do that, and then also to be able to look at my phone. And and to to be able to navigate without Mm. taking my glove off every two minutes. And what I didn't expect to have happen was I started after about six days, my fingertips started bleeding. There were just a series of micro cuts that got deeper and deeper and deeper until they more or less turned into gashes. And on almost every single fingertip and some were worse than others, but then I couldn't really do anything. Like I couldn't tie my shoes without searing pain or, or (laughs) stuff my sleeping bag in its bag, you know, in its bag, or there was this little piece of Velcro on, on the ultimate direction fast pack that I used. And I had accidentally like poke that with my thumb and it would just almost drop me. I mean, it was, I had these, 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 little gashes on my fingertips, but my entire fingertips were ultra sensitive, pink, you know, lots of blood flow swollen. And I had to try to manage that while continuing to climb. And not make any mistakes at the same time. Pardon? And not make any mistakes at the same time. Exactly. Yeah, it was, it, that was a very unique problem that I just, I didn't even see coming. And I only, the only tape I had was duct tape. And, and so again, I'm, I'm working with Chantel thinking, man, I have a, a Garmin, I can send text messages. And she basically, she said, why don't you try wrapping them with duct tape? And so I did. And I just, yeah, it looked a little bizarre to have this guy in spandex shorts and, looking a little deranged, especially I had a couple of trail miles and I just have these fingerless gloves with every fingertip is just covered in duct tape. And I had some people just be like, what is, what is wrong with you? <laughs> what a bizarre sight. Oh, yeah. Man. It's very bizarre. And the duct tape worked okay, but it had some issues. Like it wasn't breathable. Sure. Yeah. So anytime there's, I sweat or like dipped a collapsible flask into a stream to get water and then water gets in it. Then I more or less get swamp fingers. And, right. and I began to get pretty, you know, as the trip went on, I got pretty concerned about infection. 
because these were just like gaping cuts on my fingers that were just getting deeper and deeper. And, and I had to keep climbing. I, I actually ended up re we'll call it redesigning the way that I moved when I was climbing. So instead of, you know, grabbing on jugs or crimps or I guess grabbing, grabbing onto things when I was climbing that were more fingertip focused and, and like I would normally climb, I ended up changing my climbing style such that I just had wider feet. I tried to put a lot more weight on my feet and I was stemming with my arms. So I, I basically would lock out my arm full length and, and use my palms more as friction mm. and, and climb like that. And when I would use my fingertips, I would try to use that more as stabilization or more as a pressure point on the rock rather than actually holding some part of my weight. Mm. And that was able to decrease the rate at which my fingers the condition of my fingers worsened. You said that very cautiously. Decrease the rate at what your fingers worsened because you know it didn't make <laughs> it better, right? I, I know you're trying to like dance around describing that. Yeah, I mean, I when I was halfway through, I was aware that like this is very well something you know similar in the same vein is is an, is the ankle injury. This is something that could easily just stop me in my tracks. Did you ever get to a point where you're like, I can't do it anymore? The closest I got to that was around peak 45. I mean, I I sort of alluded to it a few minutes back, but the last 10 peaks were very hard on me psychologically because even though my body I felt like had began to adapt to the training lo- like to the training stress I was doing on average I was covering 6,000 vertical gains, 6,000 loss a day. I mean, in, in just brutal, rocky terrain, rock, you know, constant rock climbing, constant route finding, constant water source identifying, and doing all this with a 30-pound pack. And even though in the first half of the trip, I didn't, I never really viewed the climbing as stress, like mental stress or the trip is mental stress because I was, I was honestly just having a great time. I mean, it was stressful, but in the best way. And it's exactly what I wanted to be doing. And I realized after 40 peaks that I was kind of crushed both physically and mentally. And I, even, I, even when I finished, I didn't realize that in the, I hadn't seen anyone in the last week like the last seven days. I mean, it was just pure isolation. Just, and I think it's a testament to how focused I was just on, on, you know, my two goals. First goal was to get home, make it home. The second goal was to complete the 50 peaks or as many as I possibly could. And I just had the idea of, you know, requiring some form of human contact or it just didn't even cross my mind. I was just so lasered in to what I was trying to accomplish and in the next step, in the next peak, that everything else became insignificant. And in those last 10 peaks, I was, I had to be lazy. I mean, I began to sidestep even 
non-exposed, or sorry, I began to sidestep exposed non-technical terrain, meaning that it's not hard climbing. Like you could just be walking on some slab. Maybe there's a little, you know, few pieces of gravel on it and you're, you know, could act as a marble, but I was just seeing everything worst case scenario. And even on just more or less walking terrain, if I saw that I had the potential to fall and die, I got really stressed out where, and I've never experienced this before. I just, and I just felt like this fear was washing over me and my knees were just wobbling. I just, I, I couldn't, there was this connection between my mind and my body and it was just going back and forth and it was spiraling downwards that my mind was having a hard time. My body knew that it was depleted. And then as a result, my body was kind of shaky and then it would put more stress on my mind. And then I feel like weaker And so instead of taking these, what I would have normally done in the first half, these interesting, undocumented ridge lines for half or three quarters of a mile to connect some segment that I was doing, I I would descend 2,000 vertical feet on some loose, bouldery, junky slopes, traverse that same horizontal distance, and then climb that same vertical back up to where I was trying to get to initially. It almost seems like you're just, your risk tolerance just totally went to crap because of the total cumulative fatigue. I think that that would be an accurate statement. So you're sitting there on the 45th peak. You got five to go. Did you realize you had five to go or you'd, you'd counted them correctly at that point? <laughs> I knew at that point that you know I only had five left and I, yeah, but the, the stress was just, it was beyond anything I'd experienced in, in, in a different way. And I, that 45th peak, just descending from Mount Hague, there's really only one good way to do it. And it's down this, it was probably the worst quality rock I'd experienced the whole trip that your hands are on. So you're pulling rock off all over the place. And, I, and again, I have to use it more as a pressure point because if you start yanking on anything, not even yanking, just like pulling, you're going to be pulling things off and you're pulling things essentially into your body. So it's going to drop onto your foot or hit you in the shin, knock you off balance and then send you, you know, cartwheeling down the mountain. You don't want that. And then your feet are, it was, I think it was somewhere between a 40 and 60 degree slope of just this compact dirt with gravel on top, which is, I mean, you, you might as well have been on a pile of sloped marbles. Yeah. I mean, and, and there were these weird ice lenses because it was in the shade. So some, you know, some points I'd be trying to get my foot stable and I'd just be slipping and not know why. And then my, my shoe would be wet. It was just, <laughs> that was the most stressed I was. And, and I, I wanted to complete the trip, but I just, I mean, and it, I think if I went and did that now, it would be fine because I'm fresh. I've, I've had right. time to recover right. physically and mentally, but just at that point, I could not handle it. And I was, it took me forever to get down that. And it was, it, it was beyond taxing. So was there something that like turned it around for you at that point where you were thinking about not doing it or was it not even a question? Like you had to go on. Ugh. I knew that, this 45th peak, 
I knew that this descent would likely be the last serious technical descent that I'd have to do fully loaded. So I also had my full backpack on me. On that ridge line, I had to do the la- my last undocumented spire. I think it was called 11443. There's a ton of these mountains that are just named after their elevation. Right. And, and I had no idea what I was going to get when I got there, but it turned out to be fine. Uh, not super technical, just this steep slab. And, and then the rest of the trip, I had a good hunch that it would be more or less, I'll say non-exposed. That is really what mattered. Rather than it being technical or not, the exposure was just getting to be too much. And so I think I knew that getting down that 45th peak would was sort of my last hurrah for having to worry about dying by falling off some cliff. And <laughs> it's almost like success by like a failure is in front of you. So that's why you're going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's never really a point where I've had people ask me like, did you ever want to quit? Yeah. yeah. And the answer is no. I mean, I was, and it's interesting too, because the specific 50 peaks, like the tallest 50 peaks in Montana, it didn't really matter what they were. That project was designed such to be, it was a structural framework for me to test myself in my fitness and the skill set. And it was, it was beautiful, breathtaking sunrise, sunset, nature, full wilderness experience. But ultimately it didn't really matter what mountains I climbed so much as it, as how it affected me. What would you do different now having like a little bit of time and space to like look back on it? Like what, 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 if you were ever to do this again, are you going to do it again? What would you do different? I really don't want to do this again. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) If you were to advise somebody who is going to go out and do it, how would you tell them to do it differently than you? Let's let's put it that way. I'll preface this by saying, I honestly don't recommend anyone do this ever. Like it's, <laughs> I, I just don't. I mean, uh, but if someone did want to do it, I give yourself time. And I think it's a testament to these longer, um, you know, self-derived projects that people are taking on during the pandemic or, or in other times, like, just make sure that you have plenty of time and, you know, again, like to deal with weather, to deal with injuries, to deal with just general fatigue. And so that you're not stressed on, on the clock and you can, you, you don't have to worry about time. Like you are just out there. You've got one speed, you've got one focus. And, and especially with this and the, and the, the huge difference that the, between doing a race and doing this. I mean, there's a lot of differences, but the main thing for me is just the, the absolute severity of the potential consequences out there. Mm. And you just need to be on your game 110% of the time. I mean, and you need to appreciate that every line you're doing is significant. Every step you're taking could result in you having a very bad time. I mean, the second day I was out there, I was descending this 
boulder slope coming down from a peak. I mean, I was well below a peak, just coming down this glacier moraine area. And I rolled some boulders and my leg fell in this crack and I had boulders just pile on my leg and I had full leg entrapment Mm. on the, on the second day. And I wasn't doing anything remarkable. I mean, I wasn't doing anything cool. I wasn't climbing. I wasn't on a summit. I was just trying to descend, just trying to get down into a drainage. And, and that made me really recognize I had to stop. I mean, I had this moment of like, what am I doing out here? Yeah, like, sure. What's the, yeah, yeah. what am I trying to accomplish out here? Like, you know, I, I could potentially th- there's a lot of risk and, and I'm, it, you know, I'm not, this is just a point A to point B. It's, it's nothing significant. And I had to really stop. I mean, I sat down and, and kind of had a, an introspective, discussion of just slowing down, taking it easy and, and really focusing on every step being absolutely methodical and meticulous and just slow and having that be the priority beyond anything else. Dude, it just sounds like the whole thing, the whole way that you that you describe it, it is just not for the faint of heart. Potentially. I I don't yeah, and that's why I I just don't it was it was as I mentioned, it was by far the most stress I've experienced in my life and and as another testament to that is just how long it's taken me to try to recover <laughs> since I had been back. And, and it's, and it's, it is hit me in ways. I mean, it's the most beautiful 18 days of my life, 17, 17 days and change. It was out of this world and it was also the most traumatic and coming back. There was this level of depletion far beyond anything I'd experienced in tandem with trying to process this unworldly experience that only I was witness to the, the, the entire project changed my, changed my life simply and how I view my time, how I view, how I want to spend my time in the future, how I want to dedicate in what ways do I want to dedicate my time to athletics in the future? Well, you, I mean, so it, you, you got into this originally because you, because Bigfoot was canceled. So now, I mean, are uh-huh. you thinking about doing ultra marathons differently having had this experience because there's this like stereotypical pattern right we go do one race and then we rest and we go do another race or whatever but because you've had this experience does that make you look at that any differently absolutely i mean the week after i got back i received an email from the race director of bigfoot saying hey by the way for those of you that deferred your registration, you know, you can defer to 2021 or 2022. If you want to do the event in 2021, now's the time to register. And I talked to Chantel that week and um, to put it politely, I said, I just don't, this, this race is no longer relevant to my life. It is just not something that I'm interested in dedicating a years of training, time and energy 
just to spend three days of sleep deprivation on a course that has been pre-designed and flagged. I mean, it's a great way to test yourself in their incredible experiences, but this project has illustrated to me that what I'm looking for and what I crave is a bit of a different flavor. So are you ready to to let everybody know what is next? Or do you even know? <laughs> I have a lot of ideas brewing, but I mean, the short answer is no. And, and it's not because I'm trying to hold some mystery as, as to what I'm doing is I honestly just don't know. I mean, I've, I've spent six weeks trying to understand and, and process what is now, what is important to me? Like it coming back and made me really think about what is worth spending my time doing. And, and I don't know. And it, and I've been so focused on racing the last several years that it's a huge shift for me. And I want, I will say though, I mean, I want to push the convergence of endurance sports, like long, brutal efforts with technical terrain, adventure, navigation, and, you know, potentially doing that with somebody else, but also the solitary aspect of this trip was for me, just another echelon of spiritual awareness and development. And I would be curious to spend more time in that mindset. Well, Brandon, I, I, I appreciate the angle that you're coming at this with. And I really, I'm just really heartened to hear the thoughtfulness that you're now putting into whatever is next for you. Um, I always like it when athletes take a little bit more of a creative approach to what they're doing as opposed to chasing races around, which is fine. And if that's what, you know, if that's what their kettle of fish is, if that's what they really enjoy. But if something like this has, has made you take a little bit of reflection and pause on what's meaningful and really what's going to get your kind of blood going in life, all the more power to you, man. I can't wait to see what is next from you. <laughs> makes two of us i'm excited and and hopeful hopeful for the future and and what opportunities it may bring and what doors may open so brandon if people want to know a little bit more about you or about the route that you did where can they go and look that info up so info about me i think the best place and the route and and information on the route it would be my Instagram. And my Instagram is the wild Ned with underscores between each word. And what I've done since I've been back, I've been in the process of compiling a trip report and, and doing a daily summary of things that happened or experiences, unique things that happened to me when I was out there. And then I've made a post for each of the, 18 days that I was out there, you know, with nine or 10 photos and in videos uh, from that day. And I think, I mean, it's a, it was a lot of information for me just to go back through and try to understand for myself what happened. And so I think it's, it would be a, a good amount of information for other people if they wanted to see that. And then you can also, 
I mean, I posted a lot of other things about adventures or travel from the last handful of years. That's the best way to kind of get some more insight into who I am and what I've done. I will, uh, I'll, I'll do you a favor. I'll link all those in the show notes. If you get the trip reports compiled before this show comes out, you got a couple of weeks and so now you got a deadline. I'm sure a lot of people will be curious about it. And once again, Brandon, I, I really appreciate your time. And I'll say, I, I appreciate your perspective and your outlook on what it takes to inspire you and what you want to do in the future. I think it's really cool. And it's very refreshing. Great. Yeah. And I really appreciate the time. And there you have it. Much thanks to Brandon for coming on the podcast today. That was a much bigger route and sounds far more arduous than I had originally thought it was. More power to you, Brandon. You're not going to catch me on anything like that anytime soon. And I cannot wait to see what the future holds for you, my friend. If anybody out there thinks that one of our CTS coaches, like Chantel, who is Brandon's coach, is the right coach for them for any of your next year's adventures or races, go ahead, hit me up on social media or go to trainright.com. Information on all of our coaching packages can be found at that website, and I would love to connect you with one of our CTS coaches. That's it for the Coopcast today. Appreciate the heck out of y'all, and we will see you out on the trails.